good morning. Um, you know, we, the reason February is so busy is because it's short, but we refuse to cut anything out. Um, you got to fit it all in. Uh, we can just have chili twice. No, um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so to give you a little bit of kind of working behind the scenes here, um, back in 2023, uh, pastor had some, some health, health trouble, and he reached out and said, hey, uh, be ready, <laughs> because, uh, because I don't know if you will need to be preaching this week. And this started back then. Uh, and so it's kind of been percolating a little bit for, for the last few months. Um, we are going to be continuing in Ecclesiastes. Uh, if, it's been a minute, and so uh, we're kind of coming off a high point in the book. In Ecclesiastes, I've said it in the past, it's not a feel-good book. Uh, it's actually pretty, pretty dour at times. Uh, and we are actually coming off of one of the very few high points in the book, where the teacher reflects on all of the trouble in this world, and he comes to the conclusion that Though there is much trouble, there is a God who is above that trouble. And it should be noted uh, that, that the book of Ecclesiastes is the teacher doing a thought experiment with us. He has set out this system as if to say, this life under the sun, our years here on this earth, he is trying to make meaning from it. And one of the things that he often does is he does not deny the existence of God. He, he affirms it every time it comes up. But rather, he is trying to answer the question, how, what is the meaning of things if we either set God aside or God seems absent? And the, the through line of the book is that it is hevel. It's this Hebrew term that means meaningless or like a vapor. It's like when, when smoke rises and you kind of swat at it and it swirls around. You can't grasp it, but it's right there. And so he concludes frequently that so many different things, when we try to give meaning to our lives solely by them, apart from God, he says it is hevel. It is fleeting and meaningless, and it is a vapor. As I said, he, he's coming off of this high point where the teacher has just said that a lot of things are hevel, but one thing is not meaningless, one thing is not hevel, and that is the fact that God can make things beautiful in their time. He can make things appropriate, and he can bring things into order. Where, where there is sin and destruction and the effects of sin, he, he realizes that there, there is a God who is above those things and can work in those things to bring beauty and bring order. And so he concludes that even though uh, we try to make meaning and give purpose in our lives, to do so apart from God is hevel, but there is a God above the sun who can do that and, and through us can give meaning to this life, and that is not hevel. It is not meaningless. It, it is significant. It is one of the very few high points of the book. And so with that said, we're going to come down off the mountain today a little bit. Ecclesiastes is not over, and it's not a feel-good book. And so we're going to continue in this teacher's little experiment of life under the sun. 
and, and where he has set up this idea that Hevel exists, these, these frustrating and meaningless and kind of hard to hold on to and hard to accept things exist, now he's going to move from that to what do we do with it? If it's going to be here, if this life that we live is going to be affected by sin, how are we going to live? How are we going to respond to this? He comes to terms with the fact that, that many, many things in this life are frustrating. And we have to respond to them. And as we're going to see, how we respond to them often uh, is, is one of the ways that God uses to create that beauty and to bring things into order. If you have your Bibles, uh, if you would turn to Ecclesiastes 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 16. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 16. Uh, it's about the middle-ish. Um, and when we get into this portion, the teacher is going to reflect again on the evil of this life and how it affects our justice, how it affects our motivations, how it affects our relationships, and, and unfortunately how it often affects our worship. Where many of his vanities before have been these ideas, and he says they exist, they're out here, now he is, it's going to get personal. It's going to say, okay, but what, what when the hevel affects me, and it is creeping into my life in ways where now I can't ignore it. I can't just say it exists and it's there. I have to do something. He's going to explore this problem and in the Christian doctrine, we call this problem sin. He, he never really states it outright that this is the sin problem, but sin is what results in this feeling of hevel and meaninglessness. And so now we're going to see not just how sin propagates and makes more hevel and more meaninglessness, but, but our options for responding to it. Ecclesiastes 3 Starting in verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all will return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot." who can bring him to see what will be after him. Again, I saw all the oppression that is done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who's not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. 
Then I saw all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind." Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you to sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it is challenging. And I pray that as we, as we spend time in Ecclesiastes this morning, I pray that your spirit um, would move in our hearts, that we would perhaps find the, the little pockets of our lives where um, there is sin and there is hevel, and I pray that, that you would convict us, um, that you would help us move closer to this, this position of, of right fear and worship of you, God. Thank you again. Help us to honor you with what we do this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. It's kind of tough. The teacher begins, uh, again, he comes off the high point, and he really breaks the flow because he, it's like we're right back down to the bottom of the pit. And he begins by considering justice. And he says this life under the sun is affected by sin. And while God created a just world, humans have time and time again distorted that justice. We're incredibly good at it. And he looks out. And in all the places where he would expect to see justice happening, 
or where he would expect to see someone dealing righteously with another person, it says that he sees wickedness there. And it, it creates a sense of helplessness. When the places that are supposed to deal well with something and correct the mistakes are not, where do you go? That's the feeling that he has. Those who could uphold justice failed to do so. Often for their own gain. It doesn't take you long to find this happening in our world today. It's rampant. Where we would want and expect and hope to find justice and the right thing, we often find corruption and people doing what they want to better themselves. I don't know if you've ever watched nature documentaries. Um, when I was in school, that day in science was great because we got to watch Nat Geo and some animal and we didn't have to do book work. Um, but in, the, in these nature documentaries, they always have these amazing shots of God's creatures truly just living their lives. And, and all of the fascinating things that, that God's creatures can and, and do to survive and just live. And usually, it's usually a peaceful, and you see the, like, the guy in his little burrow, and he comes out, and he does his thing. But every now and then, and these days in science were really fun, because we're middle school boys, and you know it's coming, is, is the days when the predator goes on the hunt. And even as you're watching this, often it's gruesome, these predators taking down another animal, and there's blood on the TV in science class, and it's like, wow. But even when you see that, in the back of your brain, you know that's an animal. They are doing it for survival, and they are doing it because that is what they must do. And in the back of our brains, we go, that, that is this system. This is what animals do. The teacher here looks out at the justice and the lack of it and the unrighteousness and the wicked. And he says, you know, we're all out here living like animals. We're taking down the weak. We're doing whatever we can to put ourselves above the next guy. He says, it is hevel, it is wicked. The teacher observes mankind's failure and he's like, we act like animals. And if we remove eternity from the equation, remember, life under the sun, if we, if we set God and eternity aside, the teacher concludes, as do pockets of our education today, that, that we really truly are just animals. Might have a little bit more going for us, but at the end of the day, survival of the fittest. The weak can suffer, so the strong can prosper. It's bleak. He says they have no advantage, and if you try to make meaning out of it, apart from God and eternity, he's like, this is kind of what we're left with. We die just like every creature on National Geographic. That's life under the sun thinking. 
He's frustrated. He's frustrated with sin. He's frustrated with how sin has caused humans to not act as the people God made them to be. But in here, he gives us a couple of reminders. They're they're hidden and buried a little bit. But he reminds us that, number one, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And God does allow humanity to enjoy meaning and purpose and fulfillment. Even if we try to do things in this life, life under the sun, apart from a life above the sun reality, he says, you know, it seems like God's not just going to let this stuff go. God's going to deal with it. And the implication as we keep moving into chapter 4 is that if God is going to deal with it, and we want to be people of God, we can and should and must begin to look to deal with it ourselves as God would have us in this life. It's a call to not ignore sin. God will hold us accountable for the sin and hevel that exists and that we create. He will. Just because humans and animals die in similar fashion does not mean we have to live in similar fashion. We are different. God has made us different. As we continue... The teacher focuses specifically on the, the, this group called the oppressed. And he says it's hevel, it's frustrating, because even though they are oppressed, he looks around and he can't find anybody to give them comfort. So you have this person who is going through the worst, and society has kind of taken advantage of them, and then he looks around to maybe those who are not actively taking advantage, and he's like, is anybody going to help them? And it says that there's no comfort, no one to comfort them. And wickedness makes it as if we're stuck in this loop. It's, it's, it's meaningless. It's hevel. That's where he is at in this thought experiment. Sin leads to affliction of other people. It always has. It will continue to. It might take time for that to be realized in this life, but sin always has a negative effect on someone. It does. So from the plight of the oppressed, he he makes this kind of strange comment. He says, on the side of the oppressors, there's power and there's no one to comfort them. The oppressor also has trouble. The one who is afflicting, they're also in trouble. They're affected by sin. Their way of dealing with it is by mistreating someone. Their response to Hevel is to get ahead. And so from this plight of the oppressed, he moves on to now he's going to to focus in. This is the scene. This is the, the layout of the world in this system. This is what it looks like. People are acting like animals. They're taking advantage of each other. The oppressed have no one to turn to, and everyone's in trouble. 
And so he turns to, to our motives. He says in 4 verse 2, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. That's very dark. Upon reflecting on this wickedness that he sees, he gets to the point, and I think there are a number of young people in the world today that have gotten to this point. Where they go, the dead are better off because they don't have to deal with this. People face stuff. Whether it's oppression, or the effects of oppression, or the effects of sin. And many have come to the conclusion that perhaps it would be better if I had not been born. It's a dark place. And maybe you hear that and you think, well, I've been there. Maybe you hear that and and you think, I am there. I want to break in on the teacher's thought experiment to tell you something. You are more than a creature. You are not an animal. God made you special, and he loves you very much. He's given you purpose. He has a plan for you. Second, you are loved by God. What God has done, what we read about in the scriptures, he's done it because he loves us. That God who made you and who loves you is the God at the midpoint of Ecclesiastes 3 that he says he's the God who makes all things beautiful in their time. This life can be incredibly difficult. I'm not trying to downplay that. And the teacher doesn't either. Finally, as as the teacher reminds us, God's going to deal with it. God will judge these things. Sometimes that happens in this life. But we as Christians understand that there is a day in the future where God will ultimately judge these things if they have not yet been. Finally, I don't want that to paint a picture of of a people whose head are just in the clouds. This life is a gift. This life is a good gift from God that he has given us to live and experience things. And ultimately, the goal is that we might come to understand that there is a God who loves us. And that we would seek him more and more every day. This life is a gift. And part of it is that we are living in this system plagued by sin. And as a result, we have to respond to it. We have to respond to Hevel. In Ecclesiastes, again, it's not a feel-good book. We would want him to kind of break in and say a lot of those things. He doesn't. He just soldiers right through. The reality is the sin's effects are rampant. 
I work with teens. That's a sentence that has come to mean a lot of different things in my life. Uh, and the message that we are no greater than an animal, that's, that is still being taught. Maybe not as explicitly, but it is still being felt by young people. What's frustrating is when I, when I wrote this portion, I had said, in the last week, and, and what's frustrating is, is that's still true. In the last week, I have interacted with young people who have faced struggles with anxiety and dread and suicide and self-harm, eating disorders, identity disorders, They're not okay. That is but one effect of sin. It's so prevalent that one of the trainings that counselors go through in the high school setting now is an assessment to tell whether or not the suicide, suicidal claims are in danger of being legitimate yet. That's how often it happens, is they have an assessment to figure out what do we do next. That's where, that is where the teacher is at. It's better that they hadn't even been born because the effects of sin on this life are terrible. I also want to say that Christians can and do face mental health struggles. They do. I don't want to paint this as, well, if, if I face that, then I must not be, that's not what's going on. Christians face this too. The one thing that I would challenge with is Christians have this idea that we have hope in the God above the sun. This life is not all there is. And in a system where there is not much hope, that is incredibly powerful. This is not all there is. There is a God above the sun who has a plan to make us have a life above the sun as well. And so we'll see all this, we we'll say, okay, well, if, if people could just recognize this and, and make that change, we could turn it all around. It'd be great. And while I do believe that's true, that is the trouble of sin in this life, is it has made it incredibly difficult for people to just as simple as affirm it and move on and move toward God. Sin has muddied the waters. It makes it difficult. The teacher keys in, then, on their desire to have control. If things seem out of control, and I'm hopeless, and I don't know what to do, I'm going to do something so that way I have some sense of something to hold on to in this life. And then they sin. They do something to, to get an advantage over someone, because they can control it, and the cycle continues. We have done a truly awful job under this sun. The Bible does not speak of humanity's impact on the world apart from God and apart from Christ as a positive. We have, we have done wrong here. Sin is rampant. 
Hevel is everywhere. Power seems to motivate. And as the teacher continues, he says, so does greed. I saw all the toil and all the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. He closed out chapter 3 by saying, you know what? At least we can enjoy what we do. God's given us this work and this toil and we can enjoy it. And here in chapter 4, he kind of like nails in that coffin as well. What, so often in this life, the things we do are motivated by envy. I need a better car, a better house, a better phone. I need a new job opportunity. I need more connections so that way one day I can get a better job opportunity. Why? Well, I got to get mine because somebody else has theirs. It's a keeping up with the Joneses, in this case, before the Joneses were around. If this life is all there is, it can truly be very difficult to be content. And so one of the first ways that we can respond to Hevel in a way that that God seems to be driving us forward is we can respond with contentment. We can be content. And you might hear that and you say, you just described a system where things are not good. Things are bad. How can we be content there? We're content because we we have this peace of God knowing that this is not the end. This is not where it all stops. There is a time and a life and a reality after those dark spots. That's how we can be content there. Working out of envy is hevel because someone is always going to have more. And if you do somehow scratch your way to the top, they're going to put out the new thing next week. And you'll have to go find it. And so he does the pendulum swing. Well, if we work overwork so that way we can work out of envy, the opposite end of that is laziness. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Why try? This life is all there is. And, and I'm never going to beat that guy. I'll let them do it for me. It says the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And, and while that happens sometimes in this life, what happens so much more often today is the fool folds his hands and consumes the flesh of the people around them. Whether that's their family or the culture, they say, why would I... Why would I take up an extra shift? I don't need to. Like somebody else will do it and I'll still, you know, get something. We have lost this desire to work for more than just a check at the end of two weeks or the month. Our laziness directly affects our families, it directly affects our communities, and frankly, it is sin. Rather than doing much in competition or doing too little, the teacher says we ought to find this happy medium. And he doesn't explicitly say it, but the happy medium is contentment. It is one response to the hevel in this life. We can find rest and contentment in it. He says better one handful in peace than two handfuls in turmoil with it. Have what you have and be peaceful with that. 
Because so often what happens is as you try to get the second handful, you're going to lose a bunch out of this one anyway. There's always going to be a bigger house, a nicer car, a better job, more money, business comfort. Whatever it is, there's going to be more. You can chase it, and you will never catch it. Contentment calms oppression. If, if we're not in a system where people are like, well, i got to get above the next guy, we're going to quit afflicting the people around us. This contentment that God can give in our lives is powerful. It is one way we respond to Hevel, and another way is through service. Verse 7, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so he never asks, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity in an unhappy business. The man who toils with no one to share it with. You work 45, 50 years, and there's no one to share that with. He says, this is an unhappy business. It's, it's hevel. It's meaningless. It is the direct effects of sin in this world. Work ought to be done not just to benefit you. Yes, you get a paycheck, or you see the benefits of it. But our culture has, has begun to teach young people that you work for your paycheck so you can buy yourself something that you want. Let alone the people around you, both close and maybe a little bit farther away, that might need something from you. The idea that God has given us jobs to earn money that is not for us, that is not something that young people hear a lot about. We receive money from our jobs that is not for us. It belongs to God, and he has a plan for how we can use it. Working just for yourself is hevel. We ought to work for something else. Work for someone else. Have the person in your brain when you are doing what you do. Who is this for? Who does this benefit? And if the answer is only you, figure out how to make that not true anymore. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That last phrase is what I, I like to call like one of the highlighted points in Ecclesiastes. I think a lot of people, if they've gone through and read the book before, they've said, I've heard it, or I've at least seen it printed on something at Hobby Lobby, so I'm going to underline it. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so often we hear this in the context of a wedding. And it will be said that the threefold cord is the married couple and God. And while there is wisdom there, 
I do not, I don't think that is what he is getting at here. Again, we're coming off of how do we deal with the hevel in this life? There is wisdom there, but the context is in work. And he has just said the person who works with no one to share it with is hevel, but but so much more awful is the person who works alone. The person who works alone. I, uh, I have a team of people at the high school. And we're, we're a motley crew. But um, we, the group of us could not be more different from one another. But I truly could not do that job or have the success in any regard to what I do there without their help. And on the days where one or two of us is gone, it shows. Working alone is not good. We need each other. Community kills Hevel. When we, when we get together and we do something together, it's going to begin to remove the meaninglessness of this life. We were going to find that there is meaning in that doing the thing together. I would argue that that is a big part of why we do church. Because there is power and there is value when God's people get together. Next, he moves toward the reward of wisdom. Uh, and he, he acknowledges something he said multiple times in the past. I'm not going to dwell too far on it. Is he says, there's this king, and even though he rose up from nothing, when he's gone, all these scores of people, they forgot him. And remember, if he's writing out of this wisdom of Solomon, I think, I think there's this kind of under, underwritten, hey, kings of Israel, you can set up the, the best kingdom. You can set up the, the nicest palace. You can set up the nicest temple. But the people on the street, when you're gone, you're gone. It's hevel. It's truly hevel and a sadness. And it's the effects of sin in this life. And while there is wisdom and we can make a difference in these things through contentment and community and working hard, without God, it's not going to go far. It's not going to truly address these things. And at this low point, a person may be tempted to make a deal. This is, you see this in TV and movies sometimes where the person has the tragedy happen in their life and maybe for the first time ever it seems as if they pray. And it's the prayer of desperation. God, if you would just save them, if you would just get me out of this, then I will, and what's attached to the end of that then I will is the teacher's concern at the beginning of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know what they're doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. 
Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. He has painted this picture of a system of sin, of this world plagued by sin, and he seems to be saying, when we make promises and when we say things and when we run our mouths, for lack of a better way of saying it, it has a way of making that stuff worse. Let your words be few. Now, the beauty of what Jesus does is, is he can change our hearts and begin to redeem us in a way that when we do speak, it encourages and gives life. And our yeses are yeses and our noes are noes. But in a system plagued by sin, the rash vow, he says, you better, better not do it at all. In the young adults, we just spent too long, but a significant amount of time in the book of Judges. And one of the things that we saw time and again is when God's people make vows, they are expected to do it. And the vows that the people make cost people their lives. It costs the nation their identity at times. We are better off, even if we're in this low point, to take God seriously. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. I want to ask you, how, when was the last time you approached worship or church or your Bible reading or your midweek Bible study and you guarded your steps? And I'm not, I'm not saying, like, don't slip on the ice, um, although that is important. But, but truly, are we thinking about what our, literally the idea is we have thought about what our next step will be? Are we thinking about what, what we are going to do Sunday morning, Saturday evening? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And yes, we live un under the system of grace and we live under Jesus. But these things are still important. We ought to take God seriously. Not out of fear, but out of a desire to pursue Him. The teacher says we should spend more time listening than just going through the motions. It's like, you don't have to have the thing to say. Just, just listen. And this idea of listening calls back uh, to Deuteronomy 6, to the Shema. This is the, the Jewish people. They learn it like when they're four. They start to learn this. But it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, or God, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. They learn it at a young age. And they know that when it says, Hear, listen, it means do. You do not just hear it and go, that was really neat, and then go home. You do it. And the teacher's flow of thought is, is if you've made a promise in seeking God, you ought to do it. 
And when we approach our worship, what we're doing is we're, we're saying, God, we, we want to approach you. We want to know more about you. We want to seek you. We want to experience something of what you have for us in this life. And so we take it seriously. Worship can be fun. It often is. And I think Kyle and the worship team spend a lot of time throughout the week figuring out how to make worship worshipful. But we as individuals also have to be thinking about that. It is not just the worship team's job to to guide our worship. Do we, when we go to church or midweek Bible study, or whatever we do to worship, go through the motions, and put on airs, and figure out the right thing to say? Or are we there to experience and discover something about this God? Are we guarding our steps as we do that? Because failure to do so is hevel. It's meaningless. It's empty. The teacher's calling us not to get caught up in the injustice and the envy and the discontent and the futility of this life so that way it diminishes our worship. He says, listen, that stuff, sin's going to be out there. Sin exists. Don't let sin creep in on your worship. May Hevel have no place there. If this life is all there is, remember his system, his life under the sun, if this life is all there is, then he argues that you would at least be wise to take God seriously. Worst case scenario, it is all there is, and you gained a few friends. Best case scenario is there is a God above the sun, and you have begun the process of a relationship and worshiping that God. He concludes this by saying, God is the one you must fear. You don't fear the oppressor. You don't fear the fact that there is injustice where there should be justice. You don't fear the fact that you will have to work and that it might go towards someone else. You respond to Hevel by trusting God with it and worshiping Him and being in awe of Him alone. The God above the sun is just. He will quell discontentment. He brings relationship and community to his people. And he gives us purpose. And our response to Hevel and sin, it might not end it in this life. We're going to wake up tomorrow and there's going to be bad things going on. And it's not going to completely remove it. But it is a picture of God's plan to deal with it ultimately in the end through the person of Jesus. You can arrive at the conclusion of the teacher, there must be a God above the sun. There must be. You can live in light of that God, trusting that he not only has a plan for a life to come, but he also has a plan for this life. That plan is ultimately realized and accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. When when the teacher talks about life above the sun, I don't think he knew the name of Jesus 
at this point. But he knew God had a plan to one day provide a way for the people on the life under the sun to become a part of life above the sun. And that plan is ultimately realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to how God will make all things new. He is the answer to how God will rightly judge all things. Jesus is the answer to what is the point of community? Why do we get together? It's because of Jesus. Jesus is God's plan to restore this mess. And as a result, he alone is worthy of our praise. It is God that you must fear. That, that truth and that reality that Jesus is, is God's plan to restore this mess, <laughs> that is what we remember on a personal level when we take communion. Jesus Christ, when he died, he paid the price so that way we might have eternal life. That we might have right relationship with God the Father. That death is, is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan to, bring, to make all things new, to restore all things. And when we, when we believe that when we put our faith in Jesus we get to take part in God's plan to make all things new at communion we take time to remember Jesus the life he lived the example he set the way he loved people the way he challenged people the way he dealt with sin around him it's also our, our opportunity to remember his death on our behalf on the cross. That when we believe in him, put our faith in him, our relationship with God is restored and we can look forward to this life beyond the sun. It's also our opportunity to remember that Jesus did not stay dead. It's his rising from the dead that, that does what no other person or, or animal or anything else can do is it deals with sin. It defeats it. And we look forward today to the day when that is fully realized. As you take communion this morning, take time to remember Jesus. Jesus.